consider your audience before you communicate. What might their perspective be? How might they be feeling? What might be their reaction to what you're saying? And tend to be prepared for that. To start or allow time for the other person to speak or to respond because that can help you tailor your communication to connect with them more effectively and it might help you learn more about how they're feeling in that moment. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, my guest today is Chris Hewitt, a Royal Australian Air Force officer who served as a fighter pilot for over 20 years. He went on to be a fighter instructor and also a project manager He was actually the commanding officer of Australia's equivalent of Top Gun, the fighter school. His abilities of persuasion in business have led him to winning over a billion dollars in contracts. And he's also, curiously, an award-winning poet and the 2012 Australian Poetry Slam champion. Since leaving the Air Force, Chris has taken his hard-won leadership experience into business development, consulting, and as a communications coach, and now has over 30 years' experience in public and private sector leadership, as well as technical and creative communications. I loved hearing Chris's stories from being a fighter pilot, a moment when he understood that leadership is not a checklist, and the intersection of his experience that he's taken from being a fighter pilot, as well as a communication expert, and of course his creative depth that comes from his craft as a poet. Chris Hewitt, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Thanks so much for making the time available to join us today. Thank you, Martin. It's It's a pleasure. Haven't had a career as a fighter pilot and doing some other things in the corporate sector now, but I want to go back to the beginning. What what was the inspiration to to join the Royal Australian Air Force? My father was in the Air Force, and in fact, his father also. And uh, I, through the first forty years of my life, I I moved every two or three years, often living on Air Force bases, going to air shows and Christmas pageants on, on uh, the, the Christmas shows on each of the Air Force bases. So I, I spent a lot of time around Air Force. It was something that I was very familiar with and I got to see a lot of aircraft. So that was I was always fascinated with aircraft and flying, mostly through my father being in the Air Force. So you served for, was it around about 20 years, I think we were talking about before? Yes. Yeah. I served just under 20 years and left uh, about 15 years ago. And... You became a fighter pilot. What was that like as in your early career? What was the highlights of qualifying to be a fighter pilot? I mean, that must have been amazing. It was one of my dreams, I have to say. Uh, yes, yeah. I was incredibly lucky that I had all of the, the things that you need to be a fighter pilot. Uh, I had the necessary sort of eyesight and hearing and, and physically healthy, and uh, I had the, the aptitude, the ability to think in in three dimensions and and uh, combine that with physical movement. And I think that's probably the most satisfying part of, of a job like that is that you get to combine some physical activity, activity, some physical work with something that's actually quite cerebral at times, thinking about 
absorbing a lot of inputs of, of information, uh, making sense of it, and then directing some action, whether that's your aircraft or directing other people in their ac- aircraft to go and do something. So the the fact that it combined both your mind and, and your body was really, really satisfying. And, and I was very lucky that I was able to do that as, as a, a job, as my living for, for almost 20 years. Yeah, well, living the dream of, uh, of, a, of a young boy for sure. What were those leadership influences in your life early in your career or even before joining the Air Force? I read a lot as a kid. And one of the books that I read was Chuck Yeager's autobiography. I also read The Right Stuff too, uh, um, that involves Chuck Yeager. Uh, So I was strongly influenced by not only fighter pilots, but that test pilot astronaut sort of aspect that had a strong appeal to me until I actually learned a lot more about what it takes to be a test pilot. And I realized how repetitive and, and sometimes mundane test flying can be. So it wasn't actually something that attracted me when I became a pilot. But they they were my sort of influences at the beginning. It was those big names of fighter pilots, mostly from the, the US. Uh, although I, I did also read quite a few books about uh, the Battle of Britain and, and uh, Australian and, and English pilots as well. So people like Douglas Barter uh, as well had a strong influence on me. So it was, it was the leaders that I was reading about were the ones who were the, the fighter pilots. They were, they were the ones that attracted to me. It's only now I'm much more mature and, and have been through several different versions of leadership that I realize that my parents had a huge influence on the way that I lead. Uh, my mother is a teacher and a teacher librarian, so the endless curiosity, reading, learning, uh, a big part of the way that I approach leading. And my dad was in the Air Force as well. He was an education officer, so similarly he came from that sort of education background. And his thoughtful, slow, uh, considered approach is something that has also influenced me. So. I got a lot from my parents, but I didn't realize it at the time. I was reading books about uh, astronauts and break the sound barrier. Yeah. I actually remember reading Reach for the Sky, which is Douglas Bader's story. What an amazing story that is in terms of his own journey and the injuries that, that he had and then kept flying. Uh, definitely one of those sort of heroes, I guess, in terms of getting up again and to go back and into the fight, so to speak. Yeah, to be able to fly fighter aircraft, having lost your legs in an accident, Something that wouldn't happen these days, <laughs> but something that uh, then through determination and and drive was was possible. So, yeah, he's definitely an incredible person. What were the things around leadership that stood out early in that career as a fighter pilot and going to your first squadron? The Air Force is, is kind of special when it comes to the services in that it's largely officers who do the, the job. So we had officers who were fighter pilots who were actually going and doing the the fighting and a lot of the the people who were not commissioned did the support sort of work, which is different. And I was able for most of my career to involve myself with pilots and leading pilots. So it wasn't until I got out of the Air Force um, and and really it really came home to me that that was a special environment. It was it was unique, and uh, leading fighter pilots requires a lot of clarity and also technical expertise. you all got a common goal. You're all working in the same space. You have a common language. You have a common drive. Uh, So it's a very unique kind of leadership. A big change for me came when I became a commanding officer of of a fighter squadron. And suddenly I was responsible for 200 people from all all ranks uh, up to uh, squadron leader and from all specializations. So you had engineers and mechanics and 
painters and logisticians and administrative people. So that was a big change for me. So jumping from being responsible for for pilots to then having to be able to understand and and connect with people from a wider range. Um, And that was a big lesson for me in my Air Force leading career. It wasn't just any fighter squadron. It was actually Australia's equivalent to Top Gun, wasn't it? Yes, yes, loosely. So it was the the fighter training squadron. So most of the time we would train new fighter pilots, but every two years we would then stop and train fighter combat instructors who were the the Top Gun equivalents for Australia. So a very important role in the the fighter force, and I was incredibly lucky to be the the commanding officer. And I, I got a lot of satisfaction actually out of being able to instruct because I was instructing new pilots as well as leading the squadron. So being able to do that combination of things was incredibly rewarding. When, you, when you're instructing others, do you find yourself doing something different when it comes to leadership? What was your philosophy around teaching others to step into what is a very technically demanding role as a fighter pilot? Royal Australian Air Force for flying instruction or flying instruction takes an approach which is summarised as demo, direct, monitor. So that's demonstrate, direct, and then monitor. And for a lot of that technical skills learning, you had to demonstrate something. So you'd show the student how you perform a particular maneuver. And then you would direct, say a couple of keywords to help bring their attention back to where they might've been going a little bit off the rails or help them uh, come back and then monitor. And monitor, you, you wouldn't say anything. You just let them do it and you would watch uh, and then provide some feedback afterwards. And it's uh, for certain skills-based approaches, it's a fantastic way to help people learn new skills. And uh, one of the things that I, I noticed is I never really understood how I flew until I had to try and describe it to somebody else and to be able to demonstrate it precisely the same way every time so you're giving a good uh, a good lesson to them and then to be able to use precise language when you are doing the direct part so using keywords rather than trying to talk because you you you're doing a performing a maneuver that may only last for 30 seconds or 45 seconds so you, you don't have a lot of time to have a conversation it'll just be one word which may be airspeed or uh, horizon or something like that to direct their attention there was a great lesson in how you can help people learn new skills that I use in the work that I do now with uh, communication skills. Well, I definitely want to come back to that in a minute. We know that it doesn't always go well all the time. What was one of those biggest lessons from your time in, in your service career that is your go-to one right now or, or you recall with such sort of, I guess, clarity that it, the impact and defining moment that it had with regards to leadership and, and for you? I was very fortunate in my career in the Air Force that I I had no times that I was significantly under threat or or uh, um, had to make a decision that could involve lives of, of a large number of people. So I was fortunate in in that way. A lot of the lessons that I learned that are sharp in my memory were just moments, uh, small moments. For example, when I was the commanding officer of the fighter training school. I had to administer a formal warning. So I had to tell one of the very junior members in the squadron that they'd been warned that if they failed the physical fitness test one more time, they could be kicked out of the Air Force. And I, I thoroughly prepared as a fighter pilot does, and I knew all of the rules and regulations, and I was ready to to go through this process. And this person comes into my office, stands at attention, salutes as, as we 
do. And I start administering a formal warning. I, I'm going through the process and I hear a sound and I look up and, and this person's crying. And I look through the manual and surprisingly, there wasn't anything in the manual that told me what to do. Someone cried in my office. And as I mentioned, because I'd been leading fighter pilots uh, up until that point, it was people crying in my office was not an experience I'd had before. It's a very simple thing and it's a very common thing for many leaders, but it was new for me. So the idea that I had to learn how to have more uh, connected conversations with people, I had to be able to manage emotions and, and deal with other people's emotions in a much broader context. And that was a really sharp lesson for me, but a, quite, a, a, quite a simple one. Uh, but it's something I've seen more and more since I left the service is being able to connect with a wider range of people, not just be able to talk to fighter pilots about fighter pilot stuff. So what's the lesson from that experience that you now teach people in what you're doing now? Uh, consider the your audience before you communicate. What might their perspective be? How might they be feeling? Uh, what might be their reaction to what you're saying? And, be, and to be prepared for that. To uh, start or allow time for the other person to speak or to respond. Um, to, to Often to start with asking a couple of questions and listening before you make your statement um, because that can help you tailor your communication to connect with them more effectively and it might help you learn more about how they're feeling in that moment and to always include and consider emotion in your communication because we make decisions through emotion we are always experiencing emotions from moment to moment and they can change quickly so to consider that emotional side the the more poetic side of my background rather than the fighter pilot precise planned structured uh, side of my background you decide to leave the Air Force. What was that like, you know, and embark on another career? I was lucky with the, the way that I was able to, to go when I came out, my, my career path when I came out of the Air Force. I had decided I was going to leave. I gave a lot of notice to the Air Force, and then I looked out at what jobs were available. I wanted to go into consulting, and I ended up going to work for a company started by a, an Air Force colleague, friend of mine, and um, who had started his own company after he left the Air Force before I did. And I worked for him for a while. And in that role, I ended up spending most of three years working on the Super Hornet project, the acquisition of the Super Hornet aircraft for the Royal Australian Air Force. So I sort of took a step that wasn't all the way out. It was sort of one way, one step out. So I was still in working for the Air Force in an Air Force-related job, but I was wearing civilian clothes. And then I got an opportunity to go and work for a defence contractor, uh, so I took the next step further away. So I already had some experience with working for a business, but directly to Air Force. Now I went to work for one of the contractors that was providing services to Air Force. So that sort of staged process really helped me with understanding how business works, while still not having that shock of one day being in uniform and the next day having to um, earn a profit or make a daily sales quota or something like that. You walk into the corporate boardroom and what, what were the kind of things that were coming up for you in terms of that experience and, and what did you mostly bring from your Air Force career to that uh, environment and effectively a new environment for you? One of the uh, naive thoughts I had when I was leaving the Air Force is you know, the Air Force and, and any sort of public service government work very much focused on, on costs and and rules and regulations. Once I get out into the commercial world, because they're all 
focused on profit. They have a drive, a very, very clear goal. They must be better organized and they must have their their uh, their processes and everything worked out much better and be more efficient than the Air Force and, and public service. But when I got there, I found it wasn't the case. They were, we're not in in a, a marked way different to the way that we approached problems in, in the Air Force and the work that I'd done previously. The, the things that I found that were really beneficial for my Air Force experience in the work that I did were responsibility. So I, from very early on, from, you know, as you would appreciate, from your first day of training all the way through your experience in service, there is a strong feeling that you take responsibility for whatever needs to be done. You take responsibility for yourself. If you see there's a problem or if you see something that needs to be done, then you take responsibility for fixing it. You don't look to others to or expect others to pick up all the balls. And that's a big part of being in, in service too, is you would jump from job to job, not necessarily well prepared for the next job, but you were just expected to take, take that up and, and run with it and do a good job. So responsibility is one. The second one was being um, prepared and, and structured and planned. So having a very clear idea of what your mission is and what your objectives are, and then planning how you're going to achieve those objectives. And then the third one would be continual learning. The way that we worked as fighter pilots was we were continually training. We were always going off on a mission to train and hone some sort of skill. And when we come back, we would debrief. And we were very, very open about the things that we did wrong as well as the team had done wrong and what we were going to do to fix it. So I think responsibility, being prepared and, and structured and planned and, and continual learning were things that have stuck with me and helped me all the way through my various careers. Well, Chris, you have a really, your corporate career after the Air Force, it's got some really interesting aspects to it. You sort of were involved in that project management work early with uh, the Super Hornet. You've specialised in communications, but you're also, as we heard in the introduction, a champion at slam poetry. I know I'm curious about how that all comes together and how does that work. I'll have to say that I was never really your stereotypical fighter pilot, so I was always a little bit different. Uh, I, as well as reading books about fighter pilots and and astronauts and things when I was a kid, I also really enjoyed poetry and, and theatre and a lot of creative writing, and I've always written creatively myself. For the last 12 years or so, I have been writing poetry and performing it on stage. I found a real home there, started through Poetry Slam, which is a poetry competition, I don't do that uh, anymore. I am very lucky to be able to put on my own shows or do my own performances or contribute to other things in spoken word poetry. And I really, I enjoyed, I think everybody should have some sort of creative outlet. I think it is a very much a way of understanding yourself and also developing empathy for others. It helps you also relax and, and change your focus from maybe that strict business, stressful business environment. And it's helped me to do the work I do now. And it's a big part of why I, I started working for myself with Understood because I wanted to combine that creative communication with the technical and the business communication. So what do what the people you work with sort of learn from that creative poetry aspect when it comes to their communications? And what are the lessons you're teaching people? As I said, the Air Force side was very much that structured, you know, mission-focused, objective-focused side. And Quite often people sort of have that worked out. They know how to structure what they're going to say. They know what they're going to say very clearly. The, the poetic side is, is that side where you actually have to emotionally connect with other people. So it's that idea of using very visual imagery, 
uh, emotive imagery that people can experience what you're talking about in a way that makes it real. Uh, telling stories is a, is a big part of, of poetry as well. And that's something that I encourage people to do in their communication is find a way to tell a story so we can picture what you're saying and we can imagine ourselves in it and using the, the beauty of language. So thinking of uh, rhyme and rhythm and alliteration, these techniques that are used in poetry, if you put them, sprinkle them sparingly through the way you speak, then you can help people uh, lean in. What you say becomes a little bit more pleasing to the ear and also memorable for those few key lines that you want people to remember. If you take advantage of those things, of those parts of poetry, then it can really come alive in their minds and they'll take that with them. So it's those sides. It's that, that emotion and, and the, the, part, the beauty of language that I use my poetry background to help people communicate better with. We, uh, we often get um, rewarded early in our career for being technically competent. I'm sure it was the same as a, as a fighter pilot. You know, you can fly the aircraft safely and do whatever's needed to, uh, to bring that warfighting capability to effect. Uh, but it's that emotional competence, isn't it, that is required to, to step into leadership. Uh, I'm wondering what, what, what's your advice for, for those people that are sort of find themselves having to lead people now, having been rewarded early in their careers? when it comes to leadership and, and your specialty, which of course is communications. It, it can be really challenging when you've been doing the doing the do, doing the work, and suddenly you're now responsible for other people who are doing the work. I would encourage people who find themselves in that role to listen, to ask other people questions and to develop relationships. That's a big part of your job now. Now that you're leading others is you need to understand their perspectives. You need to ask questions so that you can help them find their own answers rather than necessarily just telling them what the answer is. And you need to develop relationships, not only with the people you're responsible for, but with other leaders in your organisations. Find a mentor, find people who've been through a similar situation to you and talk to them about it. It's through having those conversations, it's through listening to others that you will help improve your ability to connect with and lead others rather than focusing on the technical skills that you've previously relied on. You talked about one of those things being when you when you left the Air Force is having a what I heard was a growth mindset. Who in the corporate world, given your widely read, is getting your attention when it comes to leadership right now? A really good question. The people who've come to my attention are for mostly for communication, the, their ability to communicate. And uh, I think of the, there's some, a few political leaders that I think have done it well. So if you think of Jacinda Ardern, um, her ability to show uh, vulnerability and to show herself as a real person, but also communicate clearly and in some cases directly, that balance that uh, she's achieved, I think is incredible. And it's really important. If you want to lead people strongly, you need to be able to show them that you are human. You need to be able to admit mistakes, uh, let people see a little bit into your life, while also at the same time, clearly communicating what you expect of other people. So uh, I, I think she's someone that I've been particularly impressed with in the way that she's led and communicated over the last few years. Yeah, the observation would be that she's certainly built up. We kind of know what we're going to get, There's, and it's uh, and it's something that we trust. Yeah, and that comes from uh, knowing who you are and expressing that clearly and letting people see it. I think there's some of us feel that you you have to shape a brand or shape an image, and, and often that falls flat. People see through it. Uh, you're not consistent. Um, so it's it's 
knowing who you are and then being able to express that clearly. I know in my own work, I talk about leadership brand. How do you think we actually develop our own brand when it comes to leadership? What are the, what are the ingredients to make that work, do you think? Well, that first thing is know who you are. And a lot of us don't spend a lot of time getting to know ourselves. Like, How can anybody else know who you who you are, know what your brand is if you don't know it yourself? And it's something slightly different from the person you'd like to be. It, it's, you know, it's not something you're stamping on yourself. It's knowing who you are on the inside and letting that come to the outside. And that's where things like creativity, like the poetry that I, for me, that works because I get to know myself better when I write things down. I was talking to someone on a lunch this week who uses a, a free writing technique. So when they have, uh, in fact, regularly, but also when they have something on their mind, they'll just sit down and just write and just find what comes out. And from that, they understand better what they actually think about it, what their perspective is on something. You need to find a, a regular process of reflection and understanding and then and desire to grow and, and learn. Those are the things that will help you then better understand yourself and then once you once you have that understanding and 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 you're continually developing that understanding, then letting people see that in the way you communicate, uh, letting people see your passion in and in the way you behave, whether it's the way you dress, the the colours that you might use on your website, or the stories that you tell uh, to illustrate the points that you're talking about, the humour you use, all of those things should come from that in, inside that understanding, and then let people see that put that on the outside. That's the way that I would recommend people to approach having a leadership brand, a, a more organic, authentic way, rather than trying to find something outside and then fit yourself into that. I think one of the things that we've probably both learned along the way, having left the military, is that the military provides that very solid foundation because there's an expectation of leadership early in, in your career. It's something you get right into from the get-go. But what have you learned since you've left the Air Force that you didn't know before or you've found is actually maybe even more important or has contributed to your own personal growth, I guess. The big thing that I've learned and I've been working on and um, continue to work on uh, is to listen to and understand other people. I think in, in the military, you can look at someone and by what they're wearing and the way they're talking, you could tell what training they've done, what their role is now, uh, what experience they have, so how long they've been in the service. So all of those things give you immediate shorthand in, I know this is the way I need to communicate with you and these are the things I need to tell you. And we all use a common language, so it's all very structured. In Once you're outside that environment, you can no longer rely on those things. So if you speak the way that you might have spoken to a, a fellow fighter pilot, to someone who is a... Um, a sociologist or a lawyer, then you're likely to miss the mark. And you need to take a step back and learn more about the people you're talking to and, and establish that connection and understanding before you then try and influence them or try and get your, your message across. So that's a, that's been a big learning for me is to make sure that I'm listening and asking questions to better understand people before I try and, and talk my military way. What have been some of the resources that have helped you continue to that you know that growth journey, that growth mindset? What do you go to kind of resources that help feed that need for growth? One of the strongest and um, resources that I have, and 
Uh, I was very pleased to find when I left my full-time corporate job, I had a very strong network. And I think that is a, that is a powerful resource is other people. So I learn about myself and I help shape my ideas and develop my ideas by talking about them with other people. So I think it's, uh, it's really helpful to be able to explain what you're thinking about, get other people's reactions to it, hear their questions and discuss it. So I think those discussions, those conversations you have with other people is an incredible resource. I also am still a voracious reader. I, I've read a lot of um, books on, on communication and continue to do so. And uh, the odd uh, blog or uh, posts that people put on LinkedIn and things like that are also um, helpful. Always looking out for those those tips and other people's perspectives on communication and leadership. I certainly get the impression with the you know again from talking to people in that sort of middle level leadership about one of the shortcomings is often that network that they have or don't have. Frankly, what are your tips around sort of developing a network if you don't have one? Just reach out to other people. You'll be surprised at how willing and um, positive people are to meet with you and have coffee. And I would be very upfront, just be very frank. Uh, you could say to someone, hey, I've really admired your work. Uh, I would love to have a cup of coffee and and just learn a little bit about how you got to where you were because I'm in this situation now. Or you may reach out to someone and say, uh, I've just been promoted to this role. I know that you with, went through this role 10 years prior. I would really appreciate the chance to buy you a cup of coffee and see what you've learned about your experience in the role that I'm in now. So being very frank, asking people, and you'll be surprised at, at the number of people who will jump at the chance to have coffee with you and talk to you and uh, and just keep reaching out. So look for people who you might be able to learn from or you might be able to share things with and and go from there. Your specialty areas sort of communications, what, what are you seeing as the major challenges in the way it's not only leadership communications internally, but it's also the communications publicly, isn't it, that corporates and our politicians, what are you seeing as those, I guess, mistakes that people are making when it comes to communications with in the wider audience in the public arena? I think a huge, um, I'm just trying to find the right word, whether it's a failing, I'll, I'll say failing, but I, I think there's a failing in communication, particularly in Canberra, where I am in, in Australia, which is a, essentially the home of the federal government. So the government work has a big play in Canberra. The, the failing is what's seen as risky. You know, people feel in their communication that I can't reveal too much or I can't tell you what I really think about this or I can't tell you a story about where I made a mistake and I learnt a lot about this particular topic or I have to stick to a very, very strict line because if I don't, then the media or other people are going to jump in and, and criticise me. I think it's that hesitancy to be open and to be authentic because it's seen as being risky, that hampers communication. You do that and then nobody is going to be connected to what you're saying. No one's going to really want to listen to it or to remember it and they're not going to be moved by it. So a lot of people are communicating from leadership positions and they're communicating in this way, but they're not leading because the way, the way they're communicating is not human, it's not motivating, it's not interesting or memorable. I see that as being the, the biggest failing of leaders communicating at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's often that um, they're actually not too bad at doing that job internally. It's actually when they've got to be in the public arena that they suddenly withdraw and sort of forget to bring themselves to the party, so to speak. 
Yes, yeah, definitely, and 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 informal events too. That the the feeling that you have to have a, a typed speech written by somebody else, and you just read through the speech uh, rather than actually showing something of yourself. Yes, yes, we've got obsessed with trying to get it right all the time, rather than recognizing actually people just want to know that you're human and that that you actually care about them. We actually uh, one of those quotes that I got my attention early in my career was about from Theodore Roosevelt that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And yeah. I've talked about that in many places. What are your sort of thoughts about sort of those success factors for leadership right now that sort of if you're starting out, you're sort of recognising you're about to go to a new job as a, and you've definitely had more responsibilities for leading and managing people, what, what are the two or three things you think people need to do to, to get started in the best possible way? You need to understand other people as well as you can. And whatever role you're in, if you're in a new leadership role, then you need to understand your team and you need to understand the person you are reporting to. And you gain that understanding by asking questions and listening and and noting what other people say and the way they behave and act. So you need to have a very curious mindset and and an outward mindset to learn about other people. There's um, many people have said it. That Stephen Covey is one of the people who said you, you seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. So make sure you understand others before you then try and direct the, the work that they do. When you then have learned a bit about other people and you are communicating and you're directing them, then do do it in a way that is humble and, and vulnerable. So it allow for people to make mistakes, allow for yourself to make a mistake too and admit that if you've done that, allow for other people's views, always be listening to others while you're also communicating. So make sure you allow that that part of uh, the way that you communicate and be continually learning as well. I would, I would say that's a, a key part as well. That The reflection that we talked about before to learn more about yourself, get into a reflective habit so that you can note what worked well this week and what mightn't have worked well and then what's the one thing you're going to do differently next week so that you can improve your leadership and and improve your communication. It's very easy to get wrapped up in the business, isn't it? And that sense you've always got to get it right all the time. But it's not the way we learn, not the way we grow. It's not the way to communicate either. I I think often we approach communication in a way of, uh, with a mindset of efficiency. So I'm just going to send a quick email or I'm going to have a, a meeting and I'll just tell you all what we need to do and then I'm leaving. And then that only just creates you more creates more work for you later on when people have misunderstood you or they haven't agreed with you or they're just not on board. Um, so we need to reverse the way that we often communicate and listen first and then speak. And you need to spend that time listening. Yeah, and uh, I, I do think that in this busy world, people don't think they have time to stop and listen and ask the opinions of others. Well, look, Chris, it's uh, been wonderful to have you on the uh, on the podcast. Um, we've got the rapid fire questions, so what we want to do here is get you to fill in the blank. And uh, the first question: Are you ready to go with those? By the way, yeah. And as I say to people, it's it's not it's a rapid fire question. It doesn't necessarily need a rapid fire answer to. So, so the first question is: leadership is blank. Motivating others towards a goal. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. What's your go-to book on leadership? I've only just recently realised this because it is is a relatively old book, but it's that Stephen Covey book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's notionally about successful people, but its lessons and its recommendations are all about leadership. It's about knowing yourself better and then 
developing better relationships with other people and continually learning. And all of those things are the things you need to, to be a good leader. Yeah, I found that was a book I had to go back and refer to at a couple of different stages along the way. And also when you bump up against something, you go, I'm not as effective as I used to be. <laughs> All right, so our next question is, I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. The power of conversation, I think. Yeah, uh, I'm still learning now, but I have avoided conversations, avoided difficult moments or or asking other people for help or, or asking other people how things are. Yeah. You get a call from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your company or with your client. What are your first words to that person? Uh, what would you recommend we do? So back on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, depending on the situation and, and who they are, but if they're reporting it to you, they're probably yeah. closer to it than you are at the moment. So asking them their recommendation first would be a good idea, I think. It'd be so much of a tendency just to jump in and give them like direction, but actually they know more about what's going on than you do right now. The last question is the go-to quote on leadership that has had the most influence on your leadership style. I think the quote that I would have to choose. It, uh, and they sort of change, I guess, as, as I go through different parts of my career. But one that's really strongly influencing me now, and I and I talk about a lot, actually comes from a woman by the name of Kim Gordon. She was a bass player in a band called Sonic Youth in the 90s and is also an art critic. And in some of her art criticism work that she, she does in New York, in one of her pieces, she said that people will pay to see others believe in themselves. And uh, it, from a communication perspective, it's an incredibly powerful concept that the better you know yourself and the topic and, the, and your work or whatever it is, the better you know that and the more in tune you are in with that and the, and the stronger you feel it and the passion you feel about that. If you can just let other people see that, then people will, will follow you anywhere. I really love that. Can you say the quote again? People will pay money to see other people believe in themselves. Yeah, wow. Wow, that is that is profound. I have not heard that before. But I hope I got it yeah, right, wow. but that's, uh, that's a, a pretty good uh, paraphrasing anyway. Yeah. Well, Chris, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast. Um, thanks so much for giving up your time today to be with us. And I want to make sure we connect people uh, in the best possible way with you. So we'll connect you with the, whether it's sort of your websites and other bits and pieces, and, and hopefully we'll connect, you with, connect people with some of the poetry that you've done as well. Again, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Martin. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.